Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We'll begin with a hymn proper to Pentecost in the Eastern tradition. Why are we singing that today? Because uh, the group that is going to the Holy Land will be going during the octave of Pentecost, according to the Julian calendar, which all of the Christians in the Middle East use. And so we'll be going and attending in their calendar cycle. And so the people that are going have been practicing this hymn so that they can sing while we're there, according to the tradition of the people. So if you could please stand, we'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Blessed are you, O Christ our God, who have filled the fishermen with wisdom by sending down the Holy Spirit upon them, and who through them have caught in your net the whole world, O lover of mankind, glory to you. Bow down your heads to the Lord. May the blessing of the Lord and his mercy come upon you through his grace and his love for mankind at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. I want to thank the, uh, I want to thank the, the fathers that are here tonight, Father Joseph and Father Charles. Thank you for attending so faithfully. As the last few people get their stuff, I just, uh, oh, Holy Land people over there. You get to answer all the questions I have for you. Who was the third son of Adam? Seth. Seth. And Seth's great, great, great grandson who was taken up into heaven, Enoch. Enoch. And Enoch's great, great grandson who built the ark, Noah. And Noah's three sons? And Japheth, right? And which one received the blessing? Shem. And Shem's great, 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 great grandson. Well, hold on. What was Shem's other name by tradition? Melchizedek, exactly. And who did Melchizedek meet who was his great, 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 great grandson in the city of David? Abraham. And Abraham's son's name was? Isaac. And Isaac's son's name was? They received a blessing? Jacob. And Jacob received a new name. And what was the new name? Israel. And Israel had how many sons? Twelve sons, and which one received the, the blessing to become head of the family? Judah. Judah, very good. All right, that's enough for now. We'll do a little bit more at the break. Very good, guys, very good. My brother recommended to you last week to get yourself this nice, handy Bible map atlas thingy. He got one for me, and I looked at it. I've been using this one I made back when I was at Christendom. This is so much better. It's phenomenal. Excellent. So I highly recommend that you purchase it. It's from Sun, S-O-N, Sun Light Publishers, Bible Map Insert. Bible Map Insert. However, however, I know you guys love to read the Bible and you want to learn more about the Bible, but just buying more Bibles and more stuff isn't going to do anything for you unless you actually open them and use them. So I want to encourage you, 
when you get your Bible atlas, to use it while you're reading the Bible. That takes slowing down a little bit. But I have to get through my three chapters each day. No, you don't. Stop, slow down, and read the text carefully. And as he was pointing out last time, reading it with intelligence means understanding the context, right? I've said so many times, a text without a context is no text at all. Thank you. Finally, a little plug for um, my brother's Academy of Classical Languages. If you want to learn Greek or Latin, and I think you're going to be doing Hebrew pretty soon, uh, online, I think it's a, it's a great program. I've seen him do it. Uh, you say, I can't learn Greek. You can learn Greek with my brother because he does it the way the language is supposed to be done, and that is by, uh, what do you want to call it? It's a living language. He talks to you. Instead of memorizing paradigms, you actually talk about it. Like a child would learn a language, okay? From beginning, you start as a child would learn, and you slowly build that ability over time. So those brochures are right over there, and if you're interested, take one of those or talk to my brother at the break. He's got a lot to talk about, so uh, please welcome back Subdeacon Sebastian Carnazzo. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. Now we're going to pick up the pace a little bit, so put your seatbelts on. Uh, We're not going to be able to read through the whole gospel together. What we're doing here is just kind of seeing the highlights and giving you an overall structure so that when you read other passages of the Bible that we don't cover, you have a skeleton on which to hang the meat in a certain sense, right? Or a shelf in which to put the other books. Matthew chapter 4, this is after the baptism. All three of the Synoptic Gospels tell you after the baptism, Jesus went into the wilderness, into the desert. Chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested. Parazo in the Greek there, that verb, uh, could mean uh, tempted in modern English. It's a funny word, gets the sense that someone's kind of sort of faltering. Uh, Tested is probably a little better in modern English for the word there. Tested by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. And the tester came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, As it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As you read the narrative here, as we saw before, and now we're moving into this imagery in a lot more detail, and someone, uh, I can't remember who was, uh, asked about it last time, and that is, there's definitely some Israel imagery here, someone said. Well, absolutely, and that's why I mentioned to you in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you notice Joseph the just, Joseph the righteous one. If you know anything about the story of Joseph the just, or Joseph the righteous one, Joseph uh, the all-comely from the book of Genesis, and how he went down to Egypt before Israel, and then because he was in Egypt, Israel came down to him, and then he took care of them, the rest of Israel, the people of Israel, in Egypt. That imagery, that language, uh, you see this also in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 with Joseph, right, leading Israel, the new Israel, the Son of God. Israel was referred to as the Son of God in a number of places in the Old Testament. Son of God is a, a, a title that's used for a number of different categories, in the Old Testament, it's always someone who is in some sort of covenantal relationship with God. To be a son of, in the Semitic uh, sense, is to be a follower of, a disciple of, an obedient to someone. Uh, so Israel was the son of God. We hear, him, we hear God say to Moses, Say to Pharaoh, 
you better let Israel go, for Israel is my firstborn son. This is in Exodus chapter 4. And if you don't, then I'll slay your firstborn son. And you know the rest of the ten plagues and how it climaxes in chapter 12 of Exodus with the death of the firstborn. And so you have that imagery here as well. We're seeing not only is Jesus here the Messiah, the anointed king, which is the primary imagery, but under the surface you're seeing a number of other layers of, of, uh, of imagery, and one of those is that Jesus is the new Israel. And so you'll, you'll see him go down with Joseph down into Egypt, and then you see him come back, and as they, went out of, they came out of Egypt, what did, what did they do? They crossed the sea, and then they went into the wilderness for 40 years. Right? And so you see that same imagery here with Jesus doing the same thing. And in fact, you even have an interesting connection between Jesus and Joshua because he's not crossing the Red Sea here. But if you read the story in the book of Joshua of when they crossed the, the Jordan River, it says, and God parted the Jordan River like he had parted the Red Sea with Moses. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in the beginning of the book of Joshua, you have all these parallels between Moses and Joshua, Joshua the prophet like Moses who is taking over. And we talked about before uh, the beginning of last, uh, our last meeting together about the name Jesus and Joshua is the same name. Yehoshua in Hebrew or Jesus in Greek, Yeshua in Aramaic. We oftentimes miss imagery and parallels that are clear to the Christian in the early church who is reading these texts in the original languages. In our English translations we sometimes stumble because we don't see those parallels. Uh, one of the earliest typological relationships that is made between an Old Testament character and Jesus in the New is in Justin's dialogue with Trypho, St. Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho, and there he parallels Jesus and Joshua, Joshua of the Old, Joshua of the New. Right. In chapter 4, after three tests, we see Jesus three times passing the test. Right? Three in the Bible is complete or perfect. Three times he passes this. Israel failed over and over in the wilderness. And you can see the record of that. Moses telling about the stories of how many times they failed in the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8. And Jesus cites Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8 every time as the tester tests him. So you see Jesus shining forth as the true Israel, the perfect Israel, the perfect Son of God. Where Israel failed, Jesus passes the test in the wilderness. Coming out of the wilderness, we hear in verse 12, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and dwelt in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those of you, does everyone have a map from, the, from last time? There were also at the front. If you look on the map, at the top of the map, this is just a map I got off the internet. There are great maps on, online you can find. So if you look at the top of the map, you see the Sea of Galilee there. You see the city Capernaum at the top, or Capernaum? And then you see to the right of it a little dot. That dot is indicating where the city is, right? Now if you go halfway between the M of Capernaum and the dot where the city is, right uh, halfway in between there, uh, that is, we're going to see the Mount of Beatitudes. We're going to be there quickly. Uh, and then also that whole area is where Jesus is now. So if you circle, for example, if you look at the, uh, the word Galilee there, if you put a circle around that, that's Zebulun. And Naphtali is, if you were to you know, circle maybe Chorazin, Capernaum, and those other cities there, that's the area of Naphtali. It's much larger. 
But basically here, Jesus is moving into the western area of the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to see him from here on out in the Synoptic Gospels. We're going to see what's called the Galilean ministry. Jesus will be traveling constantly around the Sea of Galilee. And in fact, his friends are fishermen. So instead of going around in a circle, more efficiently, just to get in a boat and go to the other side, you'll find in almost every chapter, Jesus keeps crossing back and forth from here to there as he's ministering to the people. So in chapter 4, this is chapter 4, we were just talking about verse 13, and then verse 14, and this was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 15, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, toward the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has shined. This should remind you, of course, this is Isaiah chapter 9, this should remind you of the imagery we heard of before, that Ahaz-Hezekiah imagery from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. This should remind you of the coming birth of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the shining lights among the kings of, the ancient, of ancient Israel. He was one of the few that was actually a monotheist and kept the Torah. And in fact, when the northern kingdom, even though they had broken away from him in the south, he sent letters to them when he took the throne. He sent letters to the north. He said, come down here to Jerusalem, keep the Passover, worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham. The people who were in darkness at times, the people in the north, they were under polytheism. The Assyrian Empire had already overrun them. It was a disaster in the north. And Hezekiah encourages them to come to see the light of the Torah. Monotheism, right? The Torah, the law of God is like a light to my path, right? As the psalmist says. So Jesus goes into that region and the light of the Torah begins to shine, right? The truth of the gospel. We're going to see what that is here in a second. Verse 17, and from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you were here last time. Kingdom of heaven, what are you thinking of? Are you thinking of fluffy stuff now? Hopefully not, right? That's part of it. But kingdom of heaven is in Matthew's gospel simply a circumlocution, another way of saying kingdom of God. You compare these passages in Mark and Luke and you'll see the kingdom of God. Remember, Matthew's gospel is the earliest gospel. It's very Semitic. It's written for a Palestinian Christian audience. And so there's a lot of Semitic stuff in there, especially circumlocutions, avoiding saying God in many occasions, just referring to the place where God is. And so kingdom of God, what is kingdom of God? Again, you might be still thinking of fluffy stuff. Remember last time, we're not talking about clouds. We're not talking about angels and harps. The kingdom of God is God's kingdom, right? Israel, right? Israel in the Old Testament, right? Israel, God's kingdom. He is the king, they are his kingdom. The kingdom of God has been in complete chaos since, well, since the time of David, but surely since the time of Zedekiah, when Zedekiah, the last king of the line of David, was sitting on the throne and his sons were all killed in front of him and his eyes poked out. So the last thing he saw was the death of his dynasty. And he was taken out to Babylon, and there he died. And for basically around you know, 600 years, depending on how you want to count it, about 600 years, the kingdom of God has not had a king sitting on the throne. They've been ruled by foreign powers, and the temple, which was supposed to be built by the king, has been rebuilt, but the glory cloud has not returned. And there are major problems. Remember I mentioned to you last time, Nehemiah says when they returned, they rebuilt the temple and all this, and Nehemiah prays to God. This is in the book of Nehemiah, and he says, we are exiles in our own land. They've returned, and they still understand they're exiles. 
still a problem. The kingdom of God has not been reestablished because the kingdom of God has to be ruled over by the king, right? By the Messiah. And he hasn't been there. And now here he is. The kingdom of God is being reestablished. Verse 18, And he walked by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their, follow, or their father and followed him. Why would they do that? Someone walked up to you, you know, you're in your cubicle at work, and they said, hey, you, follow me. Oh, ah, okay. And they keep walking down the hall, and then right out the door to the parking lot, and then, hey, get in the car. Uh, but I, I've still got an hour of work. Okay. Would you do that? Why are they doing this? Why does Jesus walk up and say, follow me, and they just follow him? They drop their nets. They leave their father in the boat. Why are they doing this? Because they already knew him, right? These are the disciples of John the Baptist. And this is why the church has given us this beautiful treasure of four Gospels. Right? We don't need just one. All four give us a little more of a picture. So John the Baptist was their master. And the initial followers of Jesus come from John the Baptist's disciples. And John the Baptist tells them, go, that's the one I'm talking about. There is the Lamb of God. Right? This is John chapter 1. They've already spent time with Jesus, but he had not yet called them. And in the rabbinic tradition, you could not follow someone. You were not their disciple. You can sure, you tag along all you want, but you were not their disciple until they called you. And so they spent some time with Jesus, but they also continued to spend time with John. And now Jesus finally comes to them at the Sea of Galilee, finds them up there. They were probably fishing periodically. They would go down and spend time with John. Then they would go back up to the sea and make some cash, feed the family and work on things around the house, then go back down there and spend some time with John again. And then Jesus finally calls them and they follow. Now what about poor Zebedee? You know, they left in there mending the net. What do you think he did? What kind of man do you think is Zebedee? Yeah, go. These are the men that were formed by Zebedee. Why are they disciples of John? Because of their father. Right? What a great father. Verse 23. And he went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he went about kicking Roman soldiers in the shins and, oh no, and healing every disease and every infirmity among the people. What's that have to do with anything? Everything. This isn't just David. This isn't just Solomon beating up on Philistines. Remember, you shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their enemies round about. Remember that phrase is right out of, out of uh, uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings. That's the job of the king. But rather you hear, he will save them from their sins. So you get throughout the gospel, you keep getting this hint that something else is coming. This is not just a great and final Messiah who's going to be a thousand times more powerful than Solomon. There's something else going on. There's a bigger war, and that is sin and death. And so, verse 24, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases, pains, demonics, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them, and great crowds followed him. So what do you hear? Signs, 
No sickness? We're going to see Jesus going on healing people, raising people from their paralysis, raising people from the dead, bringing about repentance? What does that sound like? Well, that's the Garden of Eden being restored. Right? That's man and God dwelling together again in perfect harmony, where there is no death, no sickness, no sin, none of these things. Verse 25, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, the ten cities. So if you look on your map there, you see over to the right, just to the south of the Sea of Galilee, that region is called the Decapolis, the ten cities, the region of the ten cities. And Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So from that entire region, they're coming and following and listening to him. Great crowds. John was already attracting great crowds. Can you imagine the type of crowds he was now drawing? Chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Saying again, you can hear a very Semitic. He sat down and he opened his mouth and began to teach. Uh, in Hebrew, they love to use these double, these double verbs. Abraham never just goes somewhere. He always gets up and then goes. Well, of course he got up. Right? He opens the mouth and speaks. Again, you can hear the, the Semitic flavor of this gospel. So he's up on a mountain. Now, if you, again, if you look on that map, right at the M of Capernaum, or Capernaum there, right between that and the dot, the actual location of the city, you can put a little dot halfway in between, and that's about where they are. He's going to spend most of his time right there on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to cross over the sea a number of times, but that's going to be the main place he's going to do most of his work. He went up on a mountain and he began to teach them. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Imagine you are there on that day. What's the situation in which you live? Who is your greatest enemy? The Romans. Right? The Romans. And why don't you like them? They're pagans. First and foremost, they are pagans. They are polytheists in the land. Of course, we're going to find that the authorities in Judea didn't mind them too much. We have no king but Caesar. Big problem, right? So, pagans, polytheists in the land. They even had their own cities, Caesarea on the coast, Caesarea on the coast, and then Las Vegas times a thousand. <laughs> so you go out into the hills and you hear this man speaking, and you've heard that this guy might be the Messiah. And now he's talking about restoration of the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom being restored, repentance, righteousness, and the land, it's going to be yours again. Hmm, this is our guy. Imagine you're a Pharisee sitting there listening to this at the time. This is the one. Avrahim, I told you this is the one. Then he keeps speaking and he says this in verse 17. Think not, verse 17, that I have come to abolish the Torah and the prophets. This is the Old Testament. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Yaakov. This is him. This is the one. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, a little tiny line, or a dot shall pass away from the Torah until all is accomplished. You could read that a couple different ways, but most likely in the Semitic style here is he's simply saying, none of the law will pass away. Heaven and earth would pass away before the law will pass away. Again, imagine sitting there listening to this. This is the one. 
And then he says this, verse 19, Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches men to do so shall be least in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom I'm establishing, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David. Verse 20, For I tell you, and highlight this, unless your righteousness, that's righteousness, dikaiosune, this is the fulfillment of the Torah, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not getting in. Yaakov, did you hear what he just said? <laughs> That's impossible. Then you might think, well, no, of course, a Pharisee, a bunch of hypocrites. Of course, they can you know, do better than them. What was a scribe? A scribe was a professional copyist of the law. Okay? He was like the tape recorder uh, you had around when you had arguments. Okay? Pharisee would be arguing with another Pharisee or with a Sadducee. And said, yeah, but Moses said, uh, hey, scribe, get over here. And the scribe could recite for you anything. Any passage from the Old Testament, memorized. They were professional copyists all day long. This is what they did. They hung out with the Pharisees a lot. Pharisees liked to have them around. They knew the law perfectly, and they kept it perfectly. And what was a Pharisee? Remember, a Pharisee, the parashim, the separated ones, these people had taken an oath. When you joined the Pharisees, you took an oath never to break the law again, ever. St. Paul says, as a Pharisee, according to the law, I was perfectly righteous. St. Paul kept the law perfectly. Not only did they tithe on their barley and wheat, they tithed even on their mint and the dill, just in case. No way they're going to break the law. And so Jesus challenges his followers here at the, at the hill, and again, can you imagine the scribes and Pharisees gathered mixed in among them, and he says, you're not coming into the kingdom unless your righteousness exceeds that of a scribe or a Pharisee. How is that possible? It's not possible. Unless, unless, what is he talking about? And now he begins to explain how that's possible. He says in chapter 5, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to the men of old, You shall not kill. But I say to you, don't even be angry. So you'll see as Jesus goes through, he keeps talking about the Torah and the, You have heard from the men of old. or It was given to the men of old. He's up on a mountain, right? Think of Mount Sinai and Moses. A lot of this imagery in, in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is the new lawgiver, especially in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel is divided into five parts. Right? Think of the Torah. You've heard that it was said you shall not kill. But I say don't even be angry, because if you're angry, you've already broken the law. And then he says, verse 27, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. I say, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already broken the law. Verse 31. Verse 33. Verse 38. He gives them, you have heard, but I say to you. You have heard, but I say to you. And if you look at the principles here, he's giving you, or you, get the, you look at the pattern, you see that he's giving you the principles that lay behind the law. The law was basically the training wheels you stick on the bike. And Israel should not need the training wheels anymore. And they're still using the training wheels. Look, I'm riding the bike. Hey, check it out. And Jesus says, you're not supposed to have the training wheels. The purpose of the law, you shall not kill. Well, yeah, that's the basics. But you should know that you shouldn't be angry. Because if you're not angry with someone, then you would never kill. If you never look at a woman lustfully, then you would never commit adultery. Yeah, but Moses, I know Moses said that. But I say to you now. 
So what he's showing them is the law, again, was the, it was the basics. And he's showing them the principle that's behind the basics. Riding the bike without the training wheels. Paul uses this example, Galatians and Romans. He says the law was, it was like a custodian, like a nurse that kind of told you, wash your hands before you eat, before you go to the table with dad. Make sure you watch what you say and sit up straight at dinner and go to school on time. The custodian, the Torah, this is in Galatians and Romans. It was, the, it was like the training wheels. But now, St. Paul says, we are sons of the living God. And we know what our Heavenly Father wants because we are like Him. Okay, so then he says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father. Right? Sons of, disciples of, followers of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, and what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do that? Oh, tax collectors. Cheap shot. Yeah, tax collectors do that, okay? And you think you don't like the IRS. Tax collectors in the first century. These are the sellouts, right? And the story of Zacchaeus, you know, in Luke's gospel. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even task collectors do this? Verse 47, and if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Don't even Gentiles do that? Who don't even have the Torah? Oh. Verse 48, highlight this. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what's he saying? Well, unfortunately... To those sitting in the room, on the, at the mountain there listening, they wouldn't understand what he was saying. He just told them the answer, the key that unlocked how you could exceed the rights of a Pharisee. Because he just cited, or played off of, the most critical line of the Torah. The Torah is five books. In the center of the five books is the book of Leviticus. In the center of the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is considered the heart of the Torah, is what's called the Holiness Code, chapters 17 through 22. And in the center of the Holiness Code is the heart of the Torah. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, you shall be holy, that is set apart, kadosh, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Set apart, distinct from the nations. And the holiness code, and everything that comes from it, they saw as setting them apart from the nations, making them distinct. And Jesus says, yeah, you're supposed to be set apart from the nations, but there's a reason for that. You're set apart for a purpose, to be like your heavenly Father. Remember we talked about this before, Abraham was called from the nations for the sake of the nations. Israel was called from the nations for the sake of the nations. Through your seed, all the nations shall be blessed. Right? So he's showing them where this was all supposed to be heading, but they had stopped short with, well, we fulfilled the law. Turn with me over to chapter 8, verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 5. As he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, beseeching him and saying, And now we hear about a number of things Jesus does in this northern part of the Sea of Galilee. A lot of it in Capernaum. He heals this man's servant. Verse 14, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Some people want to follow in verse 18 and he says, You don't know what you're asking for. It's not going to be easy. 
And then in verse 23, he gets into a boat and crosses the sea. And again, as you read this section, all the way up leading through up to chapter 16 of the Galilean ministry here in Matthew's Gospel, you'll see him get into a boat. He goes over here and he gets into a boat. Again, look at that map. He's just crossing back and forth. And you should keep track as you're reading through the Gospel where he is. and help you get a sense of it. Like I said uh, last time, you know, if I told you, you know, I was flying down the 495 on the way here and there was no traffic. I was so excited. And then uh, I came to Route 7 and I started backing up. So... Uh, I started thinking, maybe we, my wife said, maybe we should get off the freeway and take Route 7. Maybe we can get over, come over on Lewinsville. That makes sense to you, right? But typically, we read the New Testament like someone who, if I just told you that story, was hearing it. There's probably people on, online listening who have no idea what Route 7 is. Or the traffic that starts to accumulate right there on the 495. Or what traffic really is in the Northern Virginia area, right? <laughs> A lot of people don't even know what traffic is, right? But you, right, you chuckle and laugh, and yeah, Lewinsville, yeah, you can go around that way. You know, you can go over here, too. There's another option. This is the way I went. So as you're reading through the New Testament, you'll hear all these geographical markers written for the early Christians who knew the region. And so you want to become like those early Christians in every way. And one of the ways to help you do that is to learn the geography of the Holy Land. Those of you who are going to go on the Holy Land trip are going to get a great taste of that. But that Bible map or any, get on Google, Internet, you know, you can find all sorts of resources. So in chapter 8, verse 23 to 27, we hear about him crossing the sea. This is one of the crossings of the sea. And he goes from the northern area, he goes down to the area of Gadara. This is in verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, he encountered two demoniacs. Now where is that? On your map, if you look, you go over to the west side of Galilee. You see Gennesaret there, the city of Gennesaret. That's also the name of the lake sometimes. Right, right around there, just south of there, is, there's debate about it, especially with the manuscripts. But that's approximately where he is now. Where you see Gennesaret, that dot? On the east side. I'm sorry, did I say west side? On the east side. Okay, and then in chapter 9, after the demoniacs, he gets back into a boat, and he goes north again. And it says in chapter 9, verse 1, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now, we're not talking about Nazareth there. He will go back to Nazareth here and there, but his own city is Capernaum, or Capernaum, that northern area there. That's where he spends most of his time now. And he crossed over and came to his own city, and behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. My son? Maybe Dan Brown was right. <laughs> right? In John's gospel, Jesus will say to his disciples, My little children. Really? Because son, father, mother, daughter, language, this is, this is Semitic idiom. You see it all over in the Old New Testament. Someone who is an authority above you, refer to as father in any way. The king or spiritual father or anything. Father. Anyone who is below you in any way, politically or spiritually, in some sort of a discipleship relationship, is referred to as son or daughter. And this is beautiful. This is father-son family language. That's what makes the Semitic culture so beautiful. Remember Elisha says to Elijah, as you go up in the chariot, my father, my father. Elijah didn't say, you're dead. Remember we already dealt with him earlier? You, you slaughtered those oxen for him? No. So that's why he uses that language. St. Paul refers to Timothy as his son. He refers to the Corinthians as his children. So he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, 
Now, this is the story we see in Luke's gospel and in Mark's gospel. In Luke and Mark, we hear about them actually, actually ripping the tiles off the roof when they get them down into the room. Now, what were they doing? Were they lowering him down? What were they expecting for him to raise the man from his paralysis? But instead, he says, first, your sins are forgiven, and he shall save his people from their sins. You'll see this theme throughout. What is the priority? Not kicking the Romans in the shins, but rather dealing with the real enemy, sin, and eventually death. Right? So he says, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. This is, if you read in Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel tends to explain things. It's the sayings of Peter while he's in Rome. And so there's all sorts of explanations for a Gentile or a Hellenized Jewish audience. Matthew's gospel, again, very Palestinian Christian audience. They understand what's going on here. So in Mark's gospel, this is Mark chapter 2, verse 7, he says, for who can forgive sins but God alone? You have an explanation of the issue. Right? What do they mean, blasphemy? Again, you know the story because you have all four Gospels. But imagine if you were in Rome hearing this from Peter. And he says, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What does that mean, Son of Man? You hear Jesus referring to himself as Son of Man over and over again, but what does that remind you of? Good. Oh, very good. Daniel and Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Behold, I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds to the ancient of days, being given all power, dominion, and authority, that all nations shall worship him. So that imagery there in Daniel chapter 7, and also I heard the Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, we talked about this last time. Both of those prophets in the exilic period started to see the restoration of the kingdom and the coming Messiah in a lot more elevated terminology than the messiahs that were there before, the anointed kings that were there before. They start to see the Messiah coming, and in their visions, sometimes they're talking about the God of Israel, and then all of a sudden they're talking about the Messiah, and it's hard to discern which and who is what. And this is one of those examples where they see one like a son of man that is one like a human being walking in the heavenly realm where God dwells. And he goes to the Ancient of Days, to his throne, it says, you see the film of this. What does that mean? It means he sits on the throne of God. We talked about this last time. Remember the Messiah sat on the throne of God. But here, this is really the throne of God in the heavenly realm. What does that mean? And so he says that you may know that the Son of Man, that is the Messiah you've been waiting for, and you know I'm that one, has authority to forgive sins even on earth. They knew the great and final Messiah would have some of the attributes of God. They knew he had, was going to have some very special powers. They believed when the Messiah came, the manna would start to rain from the heavens again. This is why in John chapter 6, as soon as they see the multiplication of loaves, they try to make him king. They perceive that he is the, the great Messiah. So he gives them some new information here, that something that they would not have been able to perceive, and that is that the great final Messiah that they've been waiting for is not going to only have unbelievable powers beyond Solomon but that he would also have the power to forgive sin. And that's something unique to God alone. Hmm. Right? So throughout the gospel, now you're reading, you say, well, of course, because he's the second verse of the Blessed Trinity. We know he's God. But imagine yourself in the crowd at the time. Right? There are two audiences of the gospel. There is the audience in the gospel, hearing this stuff for the first time, and then there's us, right? the audience for which Matthew has written this gospel, the church. And you've got to perceive the difference. Matthew will tell you things knowing that you're seeing things that they're not seeing inside the, inside the story. 
But that you may know that the Son of Man, that is the great and final Messiah of Daniel's vision, would have authority, highlight that word authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to them for the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and go home. Throughout the Gospels, the purpose of the signs that Jesus works, the signs are not to just make them think, wow, that's really neat. Or, wow, if he can do that, he must be the Messiah. Elijah raised a man from the dead. Elisha did as well. Elisha multiplied barley loaves. Elisha healed a leper. According to the Book of Wisdom, Solomon cast out demons. And we know the rabbis did it at the time. So, what are these signs for? What these signs are showing is that wise man said in John's Gospel when he was being asked by the Sanhedrin, what do you think about this man? He says, we know that he has come from God, for God does not hear the, the prayers of the sinner. So, what he said, what these signs are intended to do is to bring about belief in the word. Jesus says something, and you should believe what he says. But if you don't, there's plan B, a backup, and that's you see a work, which can only be the power of God. And therefore, you see the work, and you say, if he can do that, then whatever he said must be true, even if I have trouble understanding how that's possible. This is especially true in John's gospel. You see this really emphasized. But you also see it in Matthew's gospel and Mark and Luke. And here's an example of that. Verse 7, And he rose and went home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Again, notice, group in the, the, the audience, the crowd there listening and seeing this. Wow, that's amazing that God would give this power to man. Now you, again, the audience outside the gospel hearing this, you say, oh yeah, absolutely. right? You know about baptism. Chrismation. You know about the Eucharist. You know about the sacraments of initiation into the church. You know about confession of sin. You know about all these things. You're the audience outside hearing. And Matthew's writing this down for you, right? For the church. Verse 9, And Jesus passed on from there and saw a man called Matthew. This is Matthew, the writer of the gospel. Sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And he sat at table in a house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples. Remember what does Pharisee mean? Parashim, separated ones. Right? They don't go near these kind of people. When they saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And again, that's Semitic language. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. He doesn't mean that the righteous have no calling. He means I came first to, to heal those who are sick. Of course, those who are righteous don't need the doctor, right? So here's the problem. The Pharisees are keeping the law perfectly. But they're staying away from the tax collectors, from the harlots, from the sinners. They're not going up to Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, who's been sitting there waiting for someone to call him. No Pharisee would walk up and talk to that guy. But Jesus walks up to him and says, You, come. Jesus walks up to a harlot and says, You, no more of that. Follow me. He goes to those who are sick. He goes to those, the sinners, those who are in need, and he asks them to follow and that's why he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. He's quoting from the prophet Hoshea. Hoshea, part of his name, right? Yahoshua, Jesus. 
He quotes from Hoshea. Hoshea, the prophet, if you know about the prophet Hoshea, it's a great story. It's kind of complicated, um, he, <laughs> a little risque. You know, Hoshea is told to go and marry a harlot as a sign of what Israel is like. What's beautiful about the, the book is while Gomer the harlot is off going in her harlotry, continuing on leaving the house even though Hoshea has married her, has provided everything for her, she still goes out in the middle of the night out into the streets. And God says, he compares this to Israel. Even though he is married to Israel, he's given them everything they need, they continually go after the false gods. And he says, in this passage here, this is a climactic part of the story, he says, I will therefore go out to her in the darkness, and I will say to her, come. And I will whisper to her and speak tenderly to her like I did in the wilderness of old. Right? Back when he brought them out of Egypt. And then she will follow me. Then she will come to me. And then I will re-wed her in a new covenant. And she will be faithful to me again. So he goes to her while she's out there. Gomer the harlot with the other guys. Or that is to Israel while they are out worshiping pagan gods. This is how he came to Israel and Egypt, right? While they were in Egypt, they were worshiping the Egyptian gods. St. Paul says, he died for us while we were yet in sin. Right? Paul realizes this. He was on the cross and I didn't even know it. I didn't even know who he was. And he was dying for me. So he says to the Pharisee, go, be the physician. Go and be the prophet, Hoshea. Be what the sick need. The task collectors need you and you're not doing it. You're keeping yourself set apart. Right? I am holy for the Lord your God is holy. He says, no, no, no. You must be perfect. Like your heavenly Father is perfect who reigns on the evil and on the good. Right? To bring about repentance. Goes out to them and speaks tenderly to them. Okay. Then, in chapter 9, verse 18 and following, we hear about a number of things which Jesus does. Verse 18, while he was thus speaking to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus goes. While he's on the way, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years comes up to him and touches his garment, and she's healed. Why would she do such a thing? She believed that touching the holy thing, which is in contact with the holy man, who is obviously in contact with God, the great physician, God would heal her. It's like Elisha's bones. Elisha raised people from the dead when he was alive and after he was dead. Elisha doesn't heal or raise from the dead. God does through Elisha, whether Elisha's dead or alive. Same thing with the claws, touched to Paul and touched to other people and Acts the Apostles. God loves the material world. It's very good. He made it. He made it good. Right? The world was intended to be the sacrament of God to creation. So then in verse 27, we hear about him healing two blind men. And then in verse 32, he heals a demoniac. I think, well, those are amazing things. Yeah, but if you go to the Old Testament, you'll see it's just a catalog of the various things that the prophets and wise and holy men did of the Old Testament. Again, Jesus' works here will not prove to you he's the Messiah or that he's God. These works will show you that what he's saying is true. And therefore, you better listen to what he's saying. And in his words, you will perceive who he is. And who is this man that commands the wind? Who is this man that does these things? Well, the gospel is revealing that. In chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 
32. He heals the demoniac, and then look at verse 34. Highlight this. This is a critical verse in the gospel. Verse 34. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Bad move. So, that's not how he's doing this, right? And this is the beginning of a parting the way between Jesus and the Pharisees. Those who are on the inside of the kingdom and those who are on the outside of the kingdom. The gospel will begin to set a division now. As we'll head on through the rest of the gospel, between those who have heard and seen and believe and those who have heard and seen and still don't believe. Okay, make sure you've highlighted chapter 9, verse 34. Like I said, it's a critical turning point in the gospel. Up to this point, the Pharisees have been watching Jesus. Some starting to get a little more distant, a little farther away. But they're watching him trying to figure out, is this the Messiah or not? They all knew the Messiah was supposed to show up very quickly. They know that a lot of things he's saying and doing line up with the image that they had. But then he's doing some stuff that doesn't seem to be lining up. So, one of the critical issues there was saying that a man's sins are forgiven? How could he say that? So, a number of things Jesus has said and did, a number of these things have started to turn the Pharisees a little more with a critical eye toward Jesus. And they begin to ask questions. They begin to ask his disciples, why does your teacher do these things? And they ask him, why do you, if you're a rabbi, why are your disciples doing that? They keep trying to kind of draw a wedge, drive a wedge between the two. But a critical turning point is verse 34. The Pharisees have now decided he is not the Messiah. Now, careful with the word Pharisee there. As I've told you, parashim, the, the separated ones, it does not mean hypocrite. Remember we talked about it. A guy didn't see the Pharisees stand there on the street corner in Jerusalem and say, man, I'd love to be a hypocrite like those guys. No, that's not what they were. They were trying to keep the law perfectly. Now, sometimes religious movements can lead to hypocrisy, right? Sometimes uh, our piety can turn into impiety, right? And a strange reversal. So anyway, the Pharisees were not evil as a lot. They weren't, every single one of them was a hypocrite. Think of Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, right? Nicodemus coming to Jesus, and he defends him before the Sanhedrin. And then he takes with Joseph of Arimathea, he takes his body down and, and buries him. Well, the disciples are gone. Right? Uh, think of Paul, or Saul, right? the, the Pharisee and Acts the Apostles. He wasn't killing people because he was a hypocrite, or at least he didn't understand what was going on. So, the same thing here, when, G, when these Pharisees, when Matthew tells the Pharisees conclude he cast out demons by the prince of demons, or by uh, Beelzebul, the Philistine god or Canaanite god, which is at that point is just another way of referring to Satan for the Jews. He's not uh, the not every single Pharisee is you know there's not the Borg from Star Trek and they all are saying something together. He's saying that the generally as a movement, those who are in the heads of the Pharisees who are leading the movement, they are the ones who are now turned away from Jesus. And if they have turned away from Jesus then we got a big problem because the Pharisees are in control of the synagogues and have a massive influence on the people. And so, verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. We talked about both those terms already. And healing every disease and every infirmity. Remember, 
gospel, evangelion or, or basara in the Hebrew. This is a victory proclamation from the battle line. Remember the runner, how beautiful are the feet of the runner who carries the good news. This is before fax machines and telephones and stuff. Hey, we won the battle. The runner would go from the battle line to the city and deliver the good news, evangelion, the good news, hope, and telling the people, hey, the king was victorious, the God, your God is victorious, the king is returning with the army, and you know, start the barbecue. We're going to have a party. You hope the bad runner didn't come with the bad news, right, and say, uh, I'm the last one alive, the king's dead, the army's dead, uh, you might want to run because the other army is on their way. <laughs> that was the other news you could get. So Jesus goes about proclaiming the good news, the victory proclamation, the kingdom of God has been reestablished. And you would think the next line again is that therefore he's kicking the Romans in the shins and he's pulling the sword out. But it says, look who he's fighting. He's healing every disease and every infirmity. That's the battle. Those are the little skirmishes that are happening along the way. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had a compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Again, you're the audience outside the gospel, right? Who is the great shepherd of Israel? Not David, but Yahweh, right? Shepherding through David, right? So you, you hear, as you go through the prophets and you go through the New Testament, you see through Christian eyes, you're able to read what Matthew is telling you, that Jesus gave signs over and over again about his identity. This will, of course, be revealed at the end of the gospel. Verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers into his harvest. Who's the Lord of the harvest? God. Right? And look what happens. And he called to him his twelve and sent them out. Right? So again, you have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so you're seeing stuff. Matthew's showing you that Jesus was revealing, constantly giving them hints of who he is. He's not just the great and final Messiah, as we'll see. Chapter 10, verse 1. He called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Again, on your map, he's right there near Capernaum there, at the northern uh, area of the, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And he gave them, look at this list, authority. Hear that word Authority. Right, we saw that before. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, exercise demons, to heal every disease and every infirmity. And in fact, look at the catalog of the list of these things down in uh, verse 8. To heal the sick, raise the dead even, to even raise the dead. You think, wow, Elijah and Elisha did that. To raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse lepers, Cast out demons. Who are these guys he's sending out? We get the list of them in verse 2 and following. Peter, Andrew, James, John. This whole long list. We saw the first four already. Right? He sends them out and he warns them before they go that they're going to encounter a lot of problems along the way. They're going to encounter animosity just as he had. And he says to them, when you go in a village and you have trouble, he says, shake the dust from your sandals and walk out. He says, verse 15, Truly I say to you, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Notice the division starting to happen. Notice the language is starting to change now. Verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Snakes are good, remember. God made everything very good. Snakes, goats, those are good. We have images of them in the Bible. The serpent is used as, a, as something that's a symbol of sneakiness and wisdom. 
right? A snake. How many snakes have you seen uh, in the last year? One. Okay. Yeah. Right. All right. How many birds? Right? Especially doves. They're all over the place, right? Go to the park. There are as many snakes out around here as there are birds, but you don't see them. Right? They're sneaking around under bushes and in the rocks and things. They, they sense things, the sound and the ground before you come. They're gone. So the serpent, the snake, is a, a symbol in the ancient world of wisdom. Of some, it's the smartest of the animals. And tragically, of course, Satan uses that image. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. And so we associate snakes and, and Satan. But snakes, remember, themselves were created by God. And they are very good. Of course, you don't have snakes. We'd be overrun by mice. And the same thing with doves. What do you think of a dove? Right? A dove of all the birds. They even when they make noise when they land and take off. Right? Yeah, I caught some pigeons when I was a kid at the park. I mean, they're not very bright. You throw some breadcrumbs down, you catch them. Yeah, I got another one, Dad. And then they take off. Right? So uh, the, sim the simplicity of the dove versus the wisdom of the serpent. He says, you must be as innocent as a dove, but as wise as a serpent. Be very careful what you say and what you do and where you go. Watch your back. He says, why? Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake, to bear testimony before the Gentiles. When did that happen? When were the Christians dragged into synagogues and flogged and stood before Gentiles to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God? <laughs> Pretty quick, huh? Acts the Apostles records all this stuff. Right? It's the early church. All right, synagogues. Uh, verse 19, when they deliver you up, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you shall say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. When does that happen? You see it right there in Acts of the Apostles. When Peter and John are pulled before the Sanhedrin, it says the Spirit filled Peter and he began to speak. And the people watching, the Sanhedrin watched, said, this is amazing. Where does this man get all this wisdom and all this music? Right? Where does this man get all of this wisdom? Well, it's the wisdom of God. It's the Spirit of God, right? So, when did that happen? Well, it's Acts chapter 5. Verse 21, Brother will deliver up brother to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. When did that happen? It happened in the first century. Right? Jesus says, I came not to bring peace, but the sword. Now, that doesn't mean he was saying, he's advocating, you know, pick up your M16 and blow away your enemy. He was saying, I bring not peace, but the sword. He's going to divide. Families would be divided. A father would say, I believe Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And his son would say, Dad, I was just down the synagogue. And the Pharisees say, no. And they would turn each other in. You know, Polycarp. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, was turned in by the local synagogue to the Roman authorities. He's a Christian. He's one of them. So this happened all the way down to the family. He came not to bring peace but the sword. This doesn't mean Jesus was not a peaceful man. This does not mean, again, he's not advocating war and M16s and F16s and all. He was saying, I will come and like a sword divide even down to the family. And you must choose me over your father. Now again, he doesn't mean, well, ignore what your dad says. He's not trying to bring disharmony within the family. He's saying, if, if your dad says that I'm not the Messiah, and you know I am, then you better follow me. You have to make a choice. There's a hierarchy, a priority. That's all he's saying there. 
Okay, so then, verse 22, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. He's talking about an event, not at the end of time, but in the middle of time. You have to make it through this persecution. You must not give in. You must not apostatize. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, make sure you highlight this, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now hold on there. Wait a minute. Son of Man comes. Second coming. I mean, the Mayan calendar is running out, so we know he's coming quickly, but... I. <laughs> What's he talking about? The Son of Man comes. Right? Son of Man coming on the clouds. Chapter 7, verse 13 in the book of Daniel. It's not just a Son of Man I saw, but one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds to, where was he going? To the Ancient of Days. He's talking about the ascension to the Father and the great battle that's going to happen in Acts the Apostles. This is why Acts the Apostles describes him going away on the clouds. And then all of a sudden you start to hear about problems. And this is why Stephen says, right before he dies, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. The early Christians understood Daniel chapter 7 was basically a playbook for their time. They knew what was going to happen. They knew they were going to be persecuted because Daniel chapter 7 says that that's what's going to happen when the Son of Man takes the throne. There was going to be a war. And the saints, the holy ones of the kingdom, would be persecuted and put to death but he who endures to the end will be saved. The king would fight for them in the end, and in the end they would be victorious, and they would conquer and win the battle. Make sure you've highlighted that. Put a note for yourself there at verse 23. You have a little paragraph break in most Bibles. Put 16 colon 28. 16 colon 28. You'll see why when we get there. Okay, turn over to chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck ears of grain and to eat. Have you ever done this? You pluck the, the head of the barley or the wheat, and you roll it in your hand, and you can crack the husk, and it comes apart, and you keep rolling until pretty soon you have the little wheat barleys, or, or the wheat berries, or the barley berries, right? You can eat them. It's not very tasty, and it's hard on the teeth, and you're not going to get a full meal out of it, Right? You've got to eat a lot of it. So, what are they doing? They're getting a little snack. There's nothing, this was not stealing. This was perfectly within the bounds of the law of Moses. So they're walking through the grain field, and they're picking some grain and eating. Verse 2, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. Where did they come from? <laughs> well, they're obviously hiding there in the bushes or in the grain field. Boom! Right? Or they're following at a distance, and they run up. Look, 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 Jesus. Look what they're doing. And furthermore, why does your master eat with tax collectors? Notice the division, right? The wedge they're trying to, they're driving. But they're also still asking questions. They're confused. Why would any rabbi allow this kind of thing? Especially a guy who's trying to pretend like he's the Messiah. And surely some of the Pharisees watching still were trying to figure it out. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. So, what are they saying? Well, he's not breaking the law. The Sabbath says, the Sabbath law is given, the first time the Sabbath law is given in Exodus chapter 12. It says you can even cook on that day, as much as you, have, as you need to eat. The Sabbath law that they're referring to here is given in Exodus chapter 20. And it says, 
on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath, on the seventh day, do not go out and harvest, do not go out and do your typical work. Why? Because it's to be holy, set apart, right? Every other day you go out and work. This is the day you're not going to work. That is, it makes it different, it makes it holy, kadosh, set apart, distinct. What are you supposed to do? Well, you're not supposed to just sit around and stare at the wall. That day you spent time with your family. And you prayed. And you, if you could read, you'd read the scriptures. And by this time they had synagogues in their neighborhoods and they would go down there and listen to the scriptures and pray and sing some psalms. And it was a family day. So he's not doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. His disciples aren't doing that. But why are they saying that? Because this is a hedge around the law. Remember? The Pharisees. Tithe on your, Moses said, tithe on your barley and wheat and on the first fruits of your harvest and everything. Okay, what about the mint? Yeah, better do that too. And the dill? Absolutely, just in case. They knew the law didn't say you had to tithe on those things, but they thought, well, just in case. The hedge around the law, right? If you get everybody tithing on their mint and dill, then there's no way they're going to forget to tithe on their barley and wheat. And therefore, the law would be intact. And as soon as the law is kept by every man in Israel, at that moment, sin is gone from the land, and God will appear, the glory cloud will return to the temple, the ark will reappear, even without Indiana Jones, and the Messiah will show up, and everything will be just great. Right? We got in the problem from sin. Sin is what got us here. Getting rid of sin is what's going to get us out of here. Right? Again, the reason, they were right. They were right in essence. They were, they were on to something, but it wasn't going to happen the way they thought. Putting the train wheels on the bike and getting everyone to ride the bike without falling off was not going to work. There was something bigger they had to deal with. So chapter 12, Jesus explains to them, you're misunderstanding the point of this law. And he tries to reason with them. In verse 7, after he'd explained to them, look at this verse 7, he says, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Remember that passage from Hoshea? He had given him a, some homework. He said, you go check that out. You read that passage in its context in Hoshea, and then you understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. And they've returned and they haven't done their homework. They've returned and they haven't done what he said to do. And so therefore, they're, not, they're still having trouble perceiving why he's doing the things he's doing. They hadn't even gone and looked up a simple passage from the prophets he had told them to look at. Verse 9, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And behold, there was a man of withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Right? They're trying to trip him up and test him now. They're going to see what he's going to do. So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man of you, if he has one sheep, and it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand, and it was restored whole like the other. But the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him, how to destroy him. On the Sabbath? <laughs> right? They're holding a council on the Sabbath, how to kill somebody? So look at the irony here, right? Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them, and ordered them not to make him known. This is called the Messianic Secrets here in the first part of the Gospel. It's really critical to see this. He keeps telling people, don't, he heals someone, don't tell anyone. Shh, quiet. 
Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud. So put his spirit upon him. What's he talking about? Who has the spirit upon him? The anointed one, right? So Jesus has the spirit of God. Now we talked about this, not some Arian way. The spirit came down in the baptism. That was a revelation of the Spirit. Jesus, we're told in Matthew and Luke's infancy narrative, that even from the moment of his conception in his human body, he was indwelt by the Spirit. Right? But Jesus is revealing that he is the Messiah. We've seen this throughout this entire section of Matthew's Gospel over and over. He's also revealing a lot of other things. But first and foremost, the primary revelation is that he is the Messiah they've been waiting for. And therefore, the kingdom of God is being reestablished as they were hoping, though not necessarily the same picture that they had. So highlight that word spirit there in verse 18. Verse 22, Then a blind and dumb demoniac was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. Verse 23, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? 2 Samuel 7. Right? Look at the question. This is, it's the messianic question. Is he the one we've been waiting for? The son of David. That's the critical question they're all wondering about. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Again, that's the name of a pagan god. By this time, the Jews are just using it as another way to refer to Satan. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, now, if it were me, I would just walk away or condemn them to eternal abyss. But look at the mercy of Jesus here. He keeps reasoning with them, even though he knows they've condemned him. He knows they've already set up a council of how to trap him and kill him. He keeps working with them. He uses basic logic with them now. Basic logic. They, they won't listen to his words. They won't listen to his signs. Right? They see the signs. They, well, he does that by the power of Beelzebub. Well, what are you going to do with them now? Again, if it were I, I would do something else, but... Thank God it's Jesus, right? Jesus has mercy. And he uses now basic earthy reasoning. He says, look, a house divided against itself cannot stand, right? If Satan casts out Satan, how can his kingdom stand? That doesn't make any sense. And he says, furthermore, if I cast out Satan by the power of Satan, then by whom do your sons cast them out? And again, he's referring to the sons of the disciples. How do you Pharisees cast out Satan? Use your logic, guys. Verse 28, look at this. But if it is by the Spirit of God, highlight the word spirit there, the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So these are all signs, Pharisees. These are signs. These are all signs that my words are true. And that even though you don't understand exactly what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, just hold on. Right? That's the difference of the disciples of Jesus and those who are on the outside of the kingdom right now. When Jesus asked, at the, in John chapter 6, he asked his disciples, are you going to leave too? Remember after they, the, many of the disciples left, and he says to his daughter, are you going to leave too? What does Peter say? No, everything you're saying is perfectly clear. We understand just fine. No, he simply says, you have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? 
They know that what Jesus is saying is true. They don't necessarily understand everything he's saying at that point, how it's going to work out, but whatever he says is true. They believe it because he does the signs, and the signs prove that his words must be true, even though his words are mysterious sometimes. And those who stay with him will see the revelation of what he was talking about. Some of these mysteries will become more clear to them. Those who have refused to stay with him will never see the end. Chapter 12, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Look what he says in verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Division language. Verse 31. Therefore I tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven and whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, I know many people have heard that language in Matthew's Gospel here and think, man, I mean, Jesus, you can, well, but the Holy Spirit, don't mess with him. Well, what's going on here? Again, it's context is everything, right? That is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We saw that back in chapter 9. There were people standing there who heard his words and accused him of blasphemy. That's a sin against the Son of Man. But then they saw the work that he worked and they concluded, wow, they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Right? The work brought them to belief in his word. But there were some standing there who said, he does that by the power of Beelzebub. Blasphemy against the Spirit, right? Identifying the Spirit of God, the source of His power, as Satan or Beelzebub, instead of the Spirit of God. And therefore, there's not much more you can, that can happen. There's not much more. What, what else is there? You hear His words. You don't believe it. You see His signs. Well, His signs are by the power of Beelzebub. Well, there's not much in plan C. He gives them some earthy reasoning, we're going to see here, over and over again in this chapter. But it doesn't work doesn't work very well for them. Look what he says in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. You brood of vipers. You know this. I mean, you have a tree. I just did it the, uh, about a year ago. I cut down an apple tree in my backyard. I planted a number of apple trees, and there was one of them that was just not doing very well. It wasn't growing. It was, had some sort of a, some, a virus, I think, in the leaves. And... I gave it about a year, and then I cut it down. Bad tree. So this is agrarian culture here, right? Every one of these Pharisees, every one of the people listening knows that you have, sometimes you have good trees, sometimes you have bad trees. This tree bears good fruit. Well, great, let's propagate that one. Let's cut the branch off that fig tree and plant it over here. But then you have another tree or another vine, and the grapes are bitter. Ugh. Rip it out. You, Eat some grapes from this vine. Oh, they're nice and sweet. So you propagate it and stick it in the ground. He says, look, if the fruit is good, then the, the tree is good. The vine is good. Right? It's basic logic. And if you look at the fruits, I'm raising the dead. I'm healing people. I'm bringing them to repentance. Harlots are leaving their harlotry. Tax collectors are leaving their tax booths. People are loving God because of my words and my actions. This is good fruit. So basic, earthy logic. Unfortunately, they don't take to it. He says to them, 
Verse 35, the good man out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. Right? Look at what they have said. Verse 37, for by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will be the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now you have eyes to see, ears to hear, to understand what he's saying. Imagine you're in the crowd. This is a critical turning point, again, in the gospel here. Those who are outside of the kingdom, Jesus begins to speak to them in parables. Jonah was in the belly of the whale. The Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. What is he talking about? Avraham, what is he talking about? I don't know, Yaakov. I don't know. He has been preaching to them, and they've closed their ears. He's been working signs, and they've closed their eyes, lest they turn and be healed. And so now he speaks to them in mysteries, in parables. You who have ears to hear and eyes to see, reading the gospel, understand what he's doing and what he's talking about. You're inside the kingdom, but they're on the outside now. And so look what he says. He gives them a number of parables. The queen of the south, he talks about, came to Solomon, but greater than Solomon is here. Verse 43, look what he says about this generation. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then he says, I will return to that my house which I have came. And when he comes, he finds empty, swept, put in order. Then he goes and brings with him seven other spirits more evil than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. So it shall be also with this evil generation." He has gone throughout their land, preaching and teaching and healing, exercising demons. And when he walks away, those who are not with him will be like that empty house. And it's going to be worse than when he got there in the first place. Why does he say that? Well, it's related to what we saw back in that promise that you will not have gone through all the villages of Israel before the Son of Man comes. We're going to see again in chapter 16. So then, look what he does in chapter 13 and following. Chapter 13, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And the great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat there. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables. The sower went out to sow. Think, what's the purpose of a parable? We usually think of it as a nice teaching device. Well, it's only a nice teaching device if you have the code to break the parable. Right? Jonah in the belly of the whale. You say, well, I know what that means. Right? So the sower went out to sow. He tells a story that every one of these guys has seen on a regular basis. The sower went out to sow. He sows some seed. It goes on dry ground. Some goes on the rocks. Some of the thistles. The birds eat some of it. And then some goes in good soil and it grows and yields a great harvest. Yeah, Cole, what is he talking about? Look what happens in verse 10. Verse 10, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? All of a sudden he starts doing this. And he answered them, they're great teaching devices. <laughs> no, look what he says. To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, 
but to them it has not been given. For to him who has will more be given. That's the disciples. Those who have chosen to take a risk. They've heard what he said. They've seen what he did. They don't understand everything, but they said, this has got to be the one. They act in faith. So to those who have, more will be given to them. Those are those who are on the inside of the house, you could say. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Right? These are the guys who are on the outside of the house. Why are they there? They've heard, hey, you want to go listen to that Jesus guy again? Yeah, let's go. I, you know, last time he was there, I, I'm not so sure about him, not, but let's go and check him out again. It's too late. They had a little, but it's too late. And even the little they had is going to be taken. Again, out of context, this sounds like a bad social plan, right? And that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the context of the, of the narrative of the gospel and what's going on here in the life of Christ leading to, of course, Jerusalem. Chapter 13 Chapter 13, he says, verse 13, This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, with them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You shall indeed hear, but never understand. You shall indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Their ears are heavy of hearing, and their eyes have closed. Lest they should perceive with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn to me to heal them. It was the same the, prophet, the prophets came. And Isaiah was sent. And Isaiah says, how long do you want me to preach and why? And he says, go preach to them in parables. Why? Because by the time you get to the Isaiah the prophet, who's going to foretell the coming Babylon exile, they've had prophet after prophet after prophet, and starting with Amos all the way to Isaiah, the people have said, we don't want to hear it. Prophesy to us smooth things. Illusions, they say. This is referred to in Isaiah chapter 30. So it is like the time of Isaiah. And now there's a division, right? There are those who are inside the house, those who are outside the house, those who are in the kingdom, those who are out. And they've made their choice. Turn with me over to chapter 16, verse 13 now. Chapter 16, verse 13. We come to the end of the Galilean ministry. Chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, this is way, way up north, Way north, it's not even on your map, way north of Galilee. He asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some, uh, John the Baptist. Why John the Baptist? Well, Jesus has some of John the Baptist's disciples. He's going out. He's really giving the Pharisees and Sadducees a hard time, kind of like John the Baptist. Uh, he's doing a lot of stuff out there, the Jordan River, Galilee area. number of reasons why they would make that association. Some say Elijah. Why Elijah. We saw this last time. Why would they think maybe Elijah? He seemed to come back. Right? Malachi the prophet said Elijah would return. Also in the book of Sirach, it says that Elijah would return. And he's doing a lot of things that look a lot like Elijah. And he's given the religious authorities of the time and the, pol the politicians a lot of trouble like Elijah did. Some say Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? Second Maccabees, we hear about a beautiful story where Judas Maccabeus has a vision of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah pulls a sword out and puts it in the hand of Judas Maccabeus. So the Jeremiah would return, or one of the prophets, maybe. But he said, that's really great. That's great. That's interesting. Great poll. Okay, now, you 12, who have been with me for three years, who have heard everything I've said, who have seen all my works, who have eaten with me, lived with me, what do you say? And Simon Peter opens his mouth and speaks. 
Simon, this is, perfect uh, this is the perfect caricature of Simon. He's the loose cannon in the group, right? Whatever he thinks, he just says it, right? <laughs> Jesus will use that courage of Simon. He'll harness it, we'll see. He'll put the cannon back on the stand where it's supposed to be. It won't be a loose cannon anymore. But Simon just speaks. And he says what all the others were thinking, but afraid to say. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does that mean? The Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you know what the word Christ means? The anointed king, the one we've been waiting for, the Son of God. Right? Living God, that's the Semitism, it's in Matthew's Gospel. Who is the Son of God who is the Christ, the king? What is that referring to? What passage in the Old Testament? 2 Samuel 7. David had brought the ark into Jerusalem in chapter 6. We talked about this last time. And he wanted to build a house for God. And God said to Nathan, you go tell David, it's very nice, David, but... I'm going to build you a house instead. I'm going to give you a dynasty. Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel forever. And your own son shall build the house for me. And your son shall be my son. And I shall be to him a father. And so this is why we have this, the kings, the anointed kings in the line of David referred to as sons of God. Now we typically think of that as second person blessed trinity. Good. Very good, right? You're reading it from out, you're the audience on the outside, right? But remember, put yourself on the inside, the context there. That revelation is going to be given in the rest of the Gospels we'll see on Saturday. So they realize he is the Messiah. And so he picks up where 2 Samuel left off. He begins to build the house for God, right? So he turns to Simon, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bariona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Get a Semitism. This is not something you came to on human reasoning. This is a revelation from God. And so I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, rock, and I will build my ecclesia, my gathering place, where all the people will gather. This is a reference to Solomon's temple upon you. Why would he say that? What's he talking about? Hold your hand there and quickly flip over to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Verse 1, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Remember, David had conquered, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David had conquered the hill of the Jebusites, the city. Then he made that his capital. But outside the city were a bunch of other little hills. There were threshing floors where the erosion of the dirt, you have the hard the, ground, the uh, rock exposed, and they would thresh out their grain there. Ornan the Jebusite had a hill just outside of the uh, city. And David had a vision of the angel sheathing his sword. This is in First Chronicles chapter 21. Sheathing his sword, and the plague did not fall in the city. So David says, this is the spot we're going to build the house for God. Right here. This is where mercy happens. So he tells Solomon, I can't build the house, but you're going to build the house. Okay? And here's the plans. Give him the plans, the blueprints. See, son, do it just like that, okay? Uh, and I've already actually started building. You got the, the rock quarried for you and everything. Okay, I just can't put it together. So Solomon built the house of the Lord on the rock of Moriah. That rock is still there today. Those of you going to go on the on the the tour, right? Are going to see that? So he says, "You are the rock upon which I will build the house for God." Why is he saying that? Why would he say this to Simon? Because it's who Jesus is. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and following. A new covenant I will give you 
Not like the covenant of old, like I gave to your fathers on Mount Horeb, but they broke even though I was their husband. This new covenant will be in your flesh, in human flesh. And so we have the incarnation of the Word of God. The new covenant is incarnational. The ark that carried him is not a quiche wood covered in gold, but the flesh of a virgin. The rock upon whom the ecclesia, the temple, will be built is a fleshy man like us. In fact, he even says, you, the faithful, are the stones of the temple of the living God. He's talking about the church. And it all begins with the incarnation of the word of God. Not on the rock of Moriah. Not stuck in an acacia wood box covered in gold on stone tablets, but in living flesh. The word of God dwelling in man and man finally keeping his word as a son of God. How is that possible? As St. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, through baptism, we are conformed to the image of his son. And through his son, we are again the image of our Heavenly Father. A return to the garden, but much more than Adam had. Thank you very much, Father. I think since we didn't have time to do a Q&A last time, maybe just a few minutes today and then a little bit on Saturday also for those that would like to stay around. Okay, questions. You know the rules. Okay, Kathy. Okay, you'd said that the Pharisees, they were expecting a Messiah to come, you know, but then when he started forgiving sins, they're like calling it blasphemy and all that. Okay, did the people not expect the Messiah to be God? Uh, it's, a, it's a very complicated question uh, and, and a very, very good one. It's really the essence of the, the question that they're all asking at that moment. And they knew that the great and final Messiah, and again, it's hard to know exactly what was in the mind of an individual in the first century. But what we can do is look at the literature of the Old Testament and the intertestamental literature, the stuff that didn't make it into what we call the old or the new, and look at, the, um, you look at all that literature at that time and from what we can discern, they didn't expect that the Messiah would be the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Okay, that's going to take a couple councils for us to even hammer out that kind of language, right? So um, they did know, they believed that this Messiah that was coming was not simply going to be the last Messiah, the last anointed king, and would just seem to last forever and be really, really great. They knew that this great and final Messiah, from the revelation of the prophets, especially the exilic and post-exilic prophets, that when this Messiah came, he was going to be wholly different from all the others that were before. It wasn't simply going to be Solomon times infinity. It was going to be something beyond that. They knew that when he came, they believed when he came, examples of this, that the manna was going to start raining from the sky again. They knew that he would be able to do all sorts of amazing things. For example, when they saw him walk on water, okay, this has got to be the one. Right? Did they understand that God is Trinity? Right? Well, at the baptism, the church has always taught this, that at the baptism, what do we believe happened at the baptism? The Trinity was revealed as we sing in that beautiful hymn for Theophany. 
It's in the liturgy that we learn what the church teaches us, right? What the teachings of the church are. So at the baptism in the Jordan, the revelation of the Trinity, right? the Trinity was revealed. But who was there? Well, John the Baptist was there. Uh, a few other guys. What exactly did they perceive that was going on? How much It was revealed, but how much did they grasp of that revelation? Right? Jesus is walking there. They see him. They're seeing God. Right? He's man and God. They're seeing God. Are they perceiving God? Something's going to change dramatically. And I hope this will answer your question. We get to Saturday. The next story that we didn't get to is the transfiguration, which is going to be like the baptism, but in living color. Right? Something else is going on now. All the same, the same characters and information that's at the baptism, we now move into the second part of the story. And the first part of Matthew's Gospel shows us that Jesus is the Messiah. The second half is going to show us that the Messiah is God. And that's why Thomas in John's Gospel will conclude when he sees the risen Lord, my Lord and my God. Right? Uh, so how much were they perceiving? How much did they have an inkling? I don't know. I wish I could be there among the twelve and asking them questions. But, just, but In general, the Pharisees. Yeah, the Pharisees. Who was awaiting the Messiah. Did yeah. they think that it was going to be Shema Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. Right? And so they would have definitely had a lot of difficulty with the idea of Trinity, uh, the concept. The, um, it's there. It's, there's hints at it in the Old Testament. It's revealed in the New, especially the baptism of Jesus. Uh, but it will continue to be revealed. The flower will continue to open. And it takes faith, of course. So I hope maybe that's a question that would be even better uh, answered at the end on Saturday. You might be able to have a little better handle on that. So the, um, the literature... Old Testament, Intertestament literature indicates that this Messiah would be something amazing. He would have attributes of God. We see this in Deuteronomy, or in Daniel and Ezekiel. But what does that mean? That's, that's the next step. And that takes the New Testament to reveal it. I remember the rule I didn't give, and it was the rule for the speaker that he has to stay within two to three minutes on an answer. <laughs> You will not complete the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Yes, that- and brother will be divided against brother, too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You guys always, you always, always notice in the Bible, the younger receives the blessing over the older. <laughs> Does that passage refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 or something else? Uh, yes. That's why I kind of left that as the cliffhanger. So you'd come back on Saturday. We're going to see that. We're going to see that come up again in chapter 16. At the end of chapter 16, the last line of chapter 16 is going to say that same thing again in more detail. He's going to come with his angels to bring vengeance upon those who are going to kill him. We're going to see him say that explicitly when we get to chapter 24. But again, Saturday, got to come back and talk about that. Those are some passages that in the New Testament, especially Matthew chapter 24, they're often horribly misunderstood today. And people think Jesus predicted the end of the world there. If you look at the text very clearly, you look at what the fathers of the church said on it, they all understood this was a reference to 70 AD. Question coming online uh, from Bridget. What, what is the meaning and difference between rabbi and rabboni? Ah, that's an excellent question. And I don't know the answer, and here's why. Because the common, uh, linguists don't know exactly. All it simply is, is it's the same word. Ravi, Rav is exalted one above you, teacher. Ravi is my teacher, that E on the end. 
so Ravi, my teacher, Ravuni is simply an elongation of the internal vowel there, and um, most linguists say it's the same. It's a little bit more of an endearment, uh, but again, that's as best as I know from linguistics on it, unless someone has another insight on it. Were only four of the twelve apostles fishermen? Uh, well, one was a tax collector. We know that. And the, uh, the other guys, I don't know. You know, the, the church definitely had, we have stories preserved in the Church of the Church about the 12 and what they did and their backgrounds, uh, but I don't have all those memorized. Many of them were associated with John the Baptist. They were disciples of him. We know at least four of the guys were fishermen. But, I, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. We're going to have a, a series on that in the next curriculum year that I will be giving. We'll do a study of the lives of the 12 apostles according to tradition. I'm interested that when Jesus said, who do people say I am, they said, okay, John the Baptist, um, Jeremiah, Elijah. But, you know, John the Baptist, his life overlapped with Jesus. So what, what are they thinking that they were saying he was John the Baptist? Remember, you're outside, you're the audience outside the gospel, they're the audience inside the gospel, right? They don't have fax machines, they don't have email, they don't have CNN, right? This, that stuff's not going on at that time. They have stories, information's passing around. The, uh, all they know is that Jesus starts coming on the scene, people start seeing him right around the same location that John the Baptist was. And all of a sudden, before you know it, John disappears, he's off in prison. Again, we know what happened to him, but how many people knew exactly what happened at that critical moment, and then eventually, unfortunately, they kill him. And then, again, Jesus is out there doing all sorts of public things. Some of his disciples are the disciples of John the Baptist. And in John chapter 4, we hear that Jesus' disciples were also baptizing. This is not a sacramental baptism at that point. This is a baptism of repentance like John was doing. So, And they have so many people coming to him. In John chapter 4, this is John chapter 3 and 4, we hear that John the Baptist moves north gets to get out of the way of the bridegroom. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. So you can see a number of reasons why, and again, at that period, why they would have that kind of a confusion. Thank you very much, Father Sebastian. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.